1: All right. Well, once again, I'm super excited to share this guest with you, and he's an oppressive fellow, and he's got so much good stuff. If you're going through a transition right now, you're starting a new role, or you're about to start a new role, or you have friends who have started a new role, or you've got other people around you who've started a new role and seem to be struggling a little bit, any and all of these folks should absolutely hear what Dr. Michael D. Watkins has to say. He has got so much good stuff. And so you're going to walk away with learning, one, the most critical ingredient for a successful transition, two, how to accelerate your arrival at the break-even point for your new role, and three, the key questions to discover what you really need to know quickly. And again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the things mentioned and linked to in this episode, you can find that at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep29. A quick bit about Michael, Dr. Michael D. Watkins is a co-founder of Genesis Advisors and professor of leadership and organizational change at the IMD Business School. Previously, he was on the faculty at the Harvard Business School and the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Dr. Watkins wrote, the first 90 days, proven strategies for getting up to speed, smarter and faster, which the economists recognized as, quote, the onboarding Bible. End quote. The Enduring Classic has sold more than a million English copies and has been translated into 24 languages. The revised and expanded 10th anniversary edition released in 2013. At IMD, he is the director of the Transition to Business Leader Program. At Genesis Advisors, he leads a team that designs enterprise transition acceleration solutions for client organizations. Dr. Watkins is the author of numerous additional books and articles on leadership and transitions published in the Harvard Business Review and other top publications. So big thanks to Michael for sharing his time with us. And a big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out.
0: It's a trying time that challenges all of our basic assumptions. However, one thing that brings us all together is our common humanity. Now more than ever, teams must come together and work together to solve big challenges. And Trello is here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Teams of all shapes and sizes and companies like Google, Fender, and even Costco all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. With Trello, you can work with your team wherever you are, whether it's at home or in an office. No matter what device you're using, computer, tablet, or phone, Trello syncs across all of them. So you can stay up to date on all the things your team cares about. Keep your workflow going from wherever you are with Trello. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O.com. Trello.com.
1: Here's Michael. Michael, thanks so much for appearing here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Delighted to be here, Pete. Now, I understand you're in Switzerland right now. What's going on there? So
2: I split my time between the U.S. and Switzerland. I actually teach at a business school in Switzerland in Lausanne called IMD. And I teach uh, a couple of um, senior executive programs there. So I'm over there, over here, I should say, doing doing some of that right now.
1: Oh, that's fun. And I, I was curious, how would you compare and contrast the know, attitudes, personalities, styles in U.S. versus Switzerland since you're going back and forth?
2: Well, that's a little bit of a tough question because Switzerland is just so eclectic, right? I mean, there's a lot of expats in Switzerland. so But the Swiss culture itself is a very solid, very thoughtful, very conservative in a good sense culture right and so it's a society that works really really well and um there's none of the sort of political turmoil you know that's going on in the mm-hmm. u.s right now. and i don't think you know i think there's always issues obviously everywhere you know with some of these things that we're we're seeing right now but it's a society where the trains really do run on time where there's a lot of you know equity and income distribution services all work so it helps me stay optimistic that we can get through our issues and, and you know create a a society that works.
1: Oh, that is good to hear. And, and so now I want to talk a little bit. So just recently in the June issue of the Harvard Business Review, you had a nice piece called Leading the Team You Inherit. And so I'd love to hear, because earlier we chatted with Victor Prince and in episode four-ish, about how so often you don't get to handpick your team, you you lead the team you inherit, and that has a host of implications. Could you walk us through some of those key considerations and takeaways there?
2: Sure. Well, maybe just a little bit of background. You know, so so my my work has been almost exclusively for the past decade on helping leaders take new roles. Right, the first twenty days, how to get up to speed in a new leadership role, and it was very natural to go from there to helping leaders work on their teams, right? So I'm coaching a CEO right now, I'm big healthcare system and getting him up to speed, thinking about how he's going to, you know, manage his learning process, communicate, connect. That's all really important. But almost immediately the conversation becomes at least in part about, about the team, right? You've inherited this team. It's not your team. It's, you know, your predecessor's team. Some of the people on the team may have been selected by your predecessor's predecessor, They've shaped the culture of the of the team. They've shaped the way the team organizes and gets things done. And you kind of inherit that. And you've got to really step back and say, well, is this the team I need to do what I believe I need to do with this organization? And if not, how am I going to begin to transform that team into what I need it to be? And oh, by the way, while I'm doing that, how do I not have the organization not perform in the way it needs to while I'm doing that? Right. The, the analogy I use is repairing an airplane in mid-flight. Right. You've got mm-hmm. to keep the airplane flying. But there may be key parts of the team that you're trying to make some pretty big
1: changes with. Certainly. And, and so what are some of the uh, best practices or takeaways or, or, or things that are really key to, to bear in mind as you're pulling off that stunt of keeping the, the plane moving while making adjustments real time?
2: Yeah. So I so think one big one is, is that changing the people is hard. And so it's really only something you do when it's absolutely necessary early on, you know, and, and sometimes it is. Right. Sometimes it is, and sometimes you just have to make the hard choices early that say, it "says this particular person, you know, isn't really going to make it." And and if you do need to make those changes, you, you you're best to make them as quickly as you possibly can and get people in the team that really can do you know what you need them to do. But you know, in some ways, that's kind of a last resort, mm-hmm. unless you're in a flat-out crisis, in which it's clear the team isn't functioning and you really need to make wholesale changes. But changing people on teams hard and it's disruptive. There's a lot of learning that has to happen for someone new to come in and get up to speed. It disrupts the dynamic. So, you know, I'm not saying don't do it, but I'm saying, you know, really apply the 90, 10 rule, right? You know, what's the 10% of change in the composition of your team that's going to get you the 90% of the value, mm-hmm. but then realize there's, there's other dimensions you can work on, right? I mean, I think, for example, shifting roles and responsibilities, right? When, when you see a team and, and you say, look, that person's terrific, but the role they're playing isn't really a good match for what they are doing, right? And I'm, you know, I'm thinking about this because I've got an example of this right now where I'm working with a senior executive, and they've got someone really terrific doing a, you know, a, a strategy job that they're really not particularly well suited for. But there's another job they could do that they'd be really great at. So, so understanding how to shift the roles, you know, roles and responsibilities can be a key piece of it. Thinking through how you're going to really organize the team, right? So. What I find consistently when I when I sort of work with people taking over new roles is they tend not to really focus enough time early on how am I going to run this team you know how how are we going to run meetings how often are we going to meet mm. who's going to meet we would say the cadence of the meetings when do we meet as a full team when do we meet as sub teams and there's just so much energy that can be unleashed can't tell you how many times I you know I work with executive teams and and Half the people around the table will tell you that half of the time they don't know why they're sitting in meetings, right? Because there's nothing going on that's really relevant for them. And that's always a clue to me that the organization of the team isn't right. The other thing I find often liberates teams is, you know, I say you don't have to be a team about everything, right? There may be lots of things that you're doing individually, and it's fine to be a high-performing group. Let's be very clear on what you need to be a team about, Right. And let's focus the, the time you spend together on those things. And it's often like people, ah, you know, God, you know, thank you. You know, so I think it's things like that, Pete. I, you know, I think it's the, it's the composition, but not just role, not just people changes, but role changes. It's really thinking through the organization, the way the team operates. It's then focusing in on alignment, you know, and this is something where I see most leaders do a pretty good job of really making sure the team is aligned with a sense of shared purpose mission, you know, goals, a common set of metrics. The one where I see leaders struggle the most with that one is incentives, right? You often mm-hmm. have people on teams that have conflicting incentives and right. you may not as a new leader have full control over that, but you know, you have to do, make do in those, in those circumstances.
1: Oh, well, that is a nice rundown. Thank you. Oh, I love it. Action packed and, and dense and, and, and good stuff to, to think about, but I gonna i am just going to keep going for more. So, if we could maybe transition a bit to broader transitions—that's fun transitioning to transitions. So, if <laughs> your your book, "The First 90 Days," has gotten some some great uh, reviews, credence. Uh, the onboarding bible—it's been called—and so I'd love to hear. So, there you lay out ten strategies for having a successful transition, and so I'd like to hear some of those that you think are are the most impactful, but with an eye toward those who are in their first 90 days of perhaps a more junior uh, management leadership role. So it's like maybe it's their their first or second time they've had a few direct reports. What do you think are are some of the most impactful strategies for this segment of professionals in their first 90 days?
2: Yes. So I think that the foundation of every great Transition, regardless, I think, really, of your level is your ability to speed up the learning process when you come in. Mm. You know, so, so that how do you accelerate your learning so you get up to speed as quickly as possible? And that means doing as much as you can before you're formally in the role, because often there's some time period before you, you, you do that. It means really maximizing, you know, the efficiency of your learning process once you're in the job. It also means making sure you're focusing on learning the right things, right? So I find consistently that one big trap people get to uh, into, and it can happen at all levels, is they're learning, but they're not learning the right things, right? They're focusing mostly on the business, you know, technologies, markets, customer strategies, and they're not focusing enough time on the culture and the politics, and so there's a kind of a balanced learning I think you need to engage in early on, right? A, a, yes, being very focused on learning, but making sure you're, you're focusing that learning on a balanced basis across the technical, cultural, and political uh, domains. So to me, learning is, and, and by the way, learning agility, right? your ability to learn is, is a, I think, a big predictor of, of success when you're making transitions, especially when the leaps are, are, are significant ones. So, so learning and then connecting. Right? I mean, making sure that you're really identifying who the key stakeholders are and some of that's going to be obvious. It's going to be your boss. If you've got direct reports, it's going to be your direct reports. But making sure you're spending enough time early on really connecting with your peers, beginning to identify early on who you know who is going to be crucial to my success, right? yeah. whose support is going to be important, and, and beginning to reach out and build relationships with those people it's a common mistake again. I mean, I focus sometimes on common traps that people make coming into new leadership roles. And one is that, that, you know, they focus too much on, I call it vertical learning, right up to the boss, you know, or sorry, vertical relationship building up to the boss, down to their direct reports and not enough on the lateral. And, you know, you don't want to be meeting your neighbors for the first time in the middle of the night when your house is burning down. Right. Right. So if you don't, if you don't reach out to those people early and you only go to them when you need something from them, that's a big mistake. And I think also understanding that part of the foundation of building relationships is how can you help them achieve their goals too, right? It's not just about you and what you're trying to do. And so being thoughtful about how you you, you begin to build that relationship equity early on, I think is really, is really crucial.
1: Is, well, I guess I'm curious to hear. So Learning, connecting. We want to talk a, a bit more about each of these pieces? So you mentioned learning agility. Your ability to learn has a big impact, and so I'm hoping that's something that can be improved and developed. And and what are some ways to increase one's learning agility to to flourish in these transition type environments?
2: <laughs> so so there's a vigorous debate on whether yeah. you know your inherent learning agility is something that can be can be influenced or not, right? And I think that. You know the the reality is that if you if you push yourself to get better at anything, maybe you can get ten percent better. I mean, I, I will talk later about negotiation i I teach negotiation too, right? And I always say you're here because you want to get ten percent better at negotiating. I'm not going to make you fifty percent better mm-hmm. right because you come with a certain endowment and and I think learning agility is like that, Pete. I think that that you know a lot of it's just built into us by the time we're adults about you know how flexible and open are we to learning about new things and this is why people are building assessments today right to try and identify people that have higher learning agility because the more complex and convoluted things are becoming, you know the more important that learning agility is. That said, you know, I really believe that you can substitute discipline for inheritability to mm. a certain extent, right? You can say, okay, I've got to focus on the learning process. Here's, what I'm, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to be systematic about doing it, right? I'm not going to make assumptions going in. I'm going to develop some hypotheses about what's going in. I'm going to try and test them. So I do think that they're, pick a number, I, I like 10%. You can push people to be 10% better at, at learning learning. Uh, going into a new job.
1: okay and, and so when you do that learning, uh, I'm intrigued. so I, I imagine you know you can you can read the trade publications and the industry things and all the powerpoints that are sent your way associated with the organizational chart. so I'm thinking there are any number of quote unquote obvious, things I can do to learn, but what are are maybe some of the overlooked things that should be done to investigate the culture? Like, like what does that learning process look like to, to really get your arms around what's the culture here?
2: Well, so I think first of all, it helps to have framework for understanding what organizational cultures look like, right? And let me give you an example. Is it, is it a culture that's more focused on process or is it a culture that's more focused on relationships? Right. Mm -hmm. And just by asking that question, Just by understanding that cultures exist on a continuum like that and beginning to tune into, you know, is it more important here to know the right people or is it more important here to know how to navigate the process? Gotcha. That's the sort of question that can give you, I think, pretty deep insight, right? I think that likewise, you know, we talk a lot about influence network, right? Networks and influence network mapping, right? Understanding that every key decision maker has people they listen to, right? Mm -hmm. And, And those are conduits you know, and deeper connections. So having those little frameworks, I think, can help you a lot as you, you sort of try to navigate your way around in a, in a new role. I, I think understanding that you can speed your learning up by looking at things for, from different perspectives, right? What I mean by that is, you know, how, how would our customers look at us, right? How would our suppliers look at us? And, and it, that can be internal customers and suppliers inside an organization, right? How do people at the front lines perceive what's going on? You know, so, so there's, again, I think there's a, there's a, you know, I hesitate to use the word technology, but a set of techniques you can use that really, I think, can dramatically speed up the learning process. And likewise, you know, I, I know you mentioned sort of more junior people, but if you've got a if you're inheriting a team of people back to inheriting a team of people, right, just by being a little bit systematic about the questions you ask and how you ask them, you can quickly get a sense for where are people on the same page, where are they not on the same page? you can surface some of that and and catalyze the dialogue as you do that, people go, wow, you know, he, she, wow, got some important things quickly. Right. And that's a, that helps you build credibility. So it's stuff, Pete, I think at the level of that, you know, that I'm Mm -hmm. I'm really
1: focusing on. Oh, I like that. So, so you gave us a a couple Lovely questions which are kind of high leverage there. Any others leave to mind in terms of some key questions that make a world of difference for your understanding?
2: So I think one of the most important things you do when you go into a new role almost at any level is try to figure out the power structure. And I don't mean the formal hierarchy, although that can be important. It's it's really who has power and influence and who gets, you know, how do things really get done in this Mm -hmm. organization? Questions asked, how do how do things really get done? What are the real rules of the game here, right? The first one's about more about politics. The second one's more about culture. And I think that focusing on those questions and and being very intentional in your observation, right? When you go to a meeting, who talks and who doesn't? Who defers to who in that meeting? It's tuning up a little bit of your sensibility around the, the power dynamics of the organization. If someone's powerful, what is it that makes them powerful, right? Is it their the, the authority of their position? Is it the information they have access to? Is it the network of relationships they they bring? Is it the particular expertise they have? Is it the fact that they've been here longer than anyone else and they remember everything? Is it that they haven't been here all that long, but they bring something really powerful that they haven't had before? It's tuning yourself into that sort of, Understanding of the way influence functions in organizations, and likewise the way culture functions in organizations. Oh,
1: perfect, thank you. So, I want to talk a little bit about tuning into uh, one particular dynamic. You make reference to the the break-even point in yep. the point of a transition, and and that is you define, I believe, the the point at which the organization needs you as much as you need that job. Yeah, that's exactly, and and I th- I, the other so the other way
2: I try to, express it is. You know, it's the point at which you have no longer done damage to your new organization. <laughs> that's, that's very realistic. <laughs> yeah. So, so you're, I mean, the, the idea is, is that you become a net value creator at a certain point, and, and the sooner you get to that break-even point, the better. And so, that leads into a conversation about what do you need to do, including learning and connecting, but also beginning to to take some action, make some decisions, get some early wins. That's really going to be able to generate value for the organization.
1: And so I guess I'm curious. So you want to get there as quickly as possible and is 90 days sort of you've well surpassed it by then, or have you researched this in a way? It seems hard to precisely quantify, you know, how much value am I taking? How much am I making? But what's your sense for when that break even point tends to fall?
2: Yeah. Well, so so I, you know, I started life out primarily as an academic, you know, my answer to every question like that is it depends. Uh (laughs) But the thing that what it depends on is the following, right? Which is, first of all, I I just back up. I I think there's often a, a misconception about my work, right? Because, you know, the book's called The First 90 Days. And people sort of assume that that means I think transitions take ninety days, hmm. right? And and I you know and I, I even make jokes about this. I, I say you know like if you're on day ninety one and you haven't done everything you need to, you know, don't panic, right? <laughs> it's not the the end is not nigh here. Uh-huh. <laughs> what what the book is really about is how do you spend that first ninety days as productively as possible? How far you get in those ninety days depends a lot on the situation you're in, right? Mm-hmm. And so, for example, you're brought in peak to, you know, and you're a very experienced leader and you're brought into a situation that is really in crisis and it's a disaster and poor leadership, you know, has, has got it to that point. You may be adding value from the, the moment, not not just the moment you arrive, you may be adding value from the moment your arrival is announced. Oh, finally someone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow, well, there's hope, you know. The flip side is, you know, you're coming into a very successful organization from the outside it may take a long time before you really add value because you've got a lot to learn about what's made this organization successful and how do you fit in and so on. And so how long it takes you to reach the breakeven point and what it takes to get there very dramatically, depending on the particulars of the business situation you find yourself in.
1: Does that make sense? Uh, certainly, it certainly does. It certainly does. But it's interesting. Is like, I think, and this is maybe, this is a question that's bigger than transitions, but boy, I think there's probably a, healthy proportion of employees who have been there for years and are below the break-even point, just in terms of right now, like the value they're adding versus the value they're taking. And well, I guess that just means that things could be spooky for them when when times get a little tighter. Oh, absolutely.
2: Right. And I, and yeah. I think that's exactly right, is, is that it's kind of, you know, yes, the rising tide floats all boats, right? But the falling tide also shows, you know, puts rock boats on the rocks, right? And right. so I think that that's, that's exactly the danger that you're you're, you're talking about.
1: Well, no, no listeners of the How to Be Awesome About Your Job podcast will find themselves in in that position, hopefully, but for very short windows of, of transition. So while we're here, I've got to spend at least one minute talking about a little bit of your, your former or previous work. So you, you taught some negotiation and diplomacy at Harvard, and you wrote some books on these topics. I'd love it if you could maybe share with us, what are some, maybe one or two of those key takeaways that are particularly resident or or made the biggest impact in getting to that 10% improvement in negotiation?
2: So it's funny, I just, I just did a couple of day um, segment on negotiation in one of our executive programs at IMD, and so this was very much on my mind, right? I think that what people who haven't, haven't negotiated a lot don't get is there's actually many different types of negotiation. And the way you negotiate best really shifts depending on the type of negotiation you're in. And what I mean, for example, what I mean by that is if you're buying a used car, offer, counteroffer, positional bargaining you know, is the name of the game, right? If you're, if you're doing a more intricate business deal, figuring out how to structure that deal right? And what are the right trade-offs to make? That can be very much a part of it. If you're leading a negotiation team or representing your organization, how do you synchronize what's going on inside your organization with what you're trying to do outside? And so I often get into these great conversations about not is there a one best way to negotiate, but how do you systematically shift what you focus on depending on the type of negotiation you're engaged in, right? If you go back to, you know, some of the the greats of negotiation and some of the rules they laid down, right? So Roger Fisher in Getting to Yes, mm-hmm. if you know that book, you know talked about focus on interests and not positions, right? right. And that's often good advice, but, but sometimes it's not good advice at all, right? Sometimes positions are absolutely the thing to focus on, right? Because th- there's no alignment between the interests. There's nothing, you know, digging into the interests is just going to make us even matter at each other than we already are. So I think that, to me, understanding that, there is no one best way to negotiate, but there are systematic rules that you can use to negotiate better in certain kinds of situations. To me, is kind of the, the foundation, if you will, of the approach that I take. The other thing is, the other second thing, I guess, is just to recognize that the setup of negotiation, what happens before you actually engage in the negotiation itself in terms of the dialogue mm-hmm. can, can be way more important than what actually happens at the negotiating table, right? What's the agenda? Where are we negotiating? Who's participating? What are the time limits? You know, what's the, what's the setting? There's so much you can do to shape outcomes by shaping the structure of what happens before you even get to the negotiating table. You know, so that would be a second one. And I guess the third and final one would be understanding that the standard rule of thumb is, you know, be prepared, right? Everyone always says be prepared mm-hmm. for negotiation, prepare, prepare, prepare. Absolutely. right. you got to do that. But you've also got to recognize there's limits on preparation. And again, back to the theme of learning, Pete, you've got to be very focused on learning as much as you can once you get to the negotiating table. And it's that balance of planning and learning that I think, and flexibility, the ability to flex when it becomes obvious that what you're going for isn't going to quite work that's the foundations of really what it means to be a great negotiator.
1: Oh, I hear you. And those sound like some fantastic principles to bear in mind. And could you maybe give us an example or story or case to to illustrate one or more of those principles, bring them to life?
2: Sure. So so I think that I used to do a lot of negotiating, or a lot of studies of negotiating in the international security environment, right? And so I was studying people like Richard Holbrook in Bosnia or Robert Gallucci negotiating with the North Koreans, right? Mm. And Identifying when the situation is really ripe for for deal making and knowing what to focus on is really crucial, right? So the Bosnian conflict—it's a long time ago, but it's, it stays in my mind—was um, a dreadful thing, right? People were killing each other; it was, you know, ethnic conflict, you know, to the max. People had tried to to you know solve that problem, but couldn't. And Richard Holbrook, you know, sort of came to the scene, and in party came at a, at the right moment and in part, he convinced people that force had to be used to force the parties to the bargaining tables, and there's often this interplay between force and diplomacy. He also was very skilled at moving people sort of step-by-step incrementally towards a solution. He was very good at managing the internal dynamics within the U.S. government, even as he was trying to negotiate externally. It's that kind, that sorts of skill sets that really, you know, sort of in, in great negotiators, I see them you know, and it, and they always sort of um, stick with me.
1: Oh, impressive! Well, I, I'm I'm intrigued to read all about this. Now, is there is there a good biography or or book on kind of covering that well?
2: So, I, I wrote a book um, called Breakthrough International Negotiation. It's actually it's funny you mention this. It's probably the book that I am most proud of, but it's the book that probably sold the least. I mean, my standing oh. joke, but this <laughs> is that I, that I wrote a book that sold a million copies, and I wrote ten books that sold like fifteen copies yeah. each. But, <laughs> I think that, that there is a, there's a biography, I'm trying to remember the name of it, about Richard Holbrook and sort of what he did in Bosnia that really uh, it was a, a wonderful account of it. And I'll try to um, see if I can come up with the name, but it doesn't strike me. Uh, oh, to, I think it's called To End a War. That's, that's what it is, oh, Richard Holbrook's gotcha. To End a War. I would recommend uh, very highly.
1: Oh, fun! Thank you. Well, well, while we're talking about recommendations, uh, I might shift gears now to the fast favorites segment. Unless there's anything else you want to make sure uh, we put out there first. No, I think that's great. Okay. Well, can you start us off by sharing a favorite quote? Something you find inspiring.
2: Oh my God! So, so you asked me these things, um, and I, oh, you know, actually, one I I really do like that you, you know, you you mentioned this is uh, the you never get a second chance to make a first impression. All right. right. That was um, Will Rogers, and I think it's a, it's a quote that's always stuck with me, right? And he, he was very funny. He was quite a humorist, as you know. And, you know, it's, it's sort of a funny little quote, but it's so true, right? When it comes to people making transitions into new leadership roles, you really don't get a second chance because people will begin to make judgments about you
1: almost, uh, almost instantly. All right. And how about a favorite study or a piece of research or experiment you like?
2: Oh, the Hawthorne experiments always struck me as a really big one, and that, that may not be uh something you you know about. It was done at the Harvard Business School a long, long time ago, and it was some of the original work that really looked at motivation and engagement. but they also you know figured out in the midst of that study that just the act of studying people changes the way they behave right and right. so that was very, very influential on me as I was learning to be a, to be a researcher
0: mm-hmm.
1: And how about a favorite
2: book? I was funny. I was thinking about this a little bit and I'm thinking about, are we talking about business books or other books? I mean, I think a, a business book I like a lot is um, Larry Bossidy and Ram Sharan's Execution mm. because there's really not much out there that really focuses on how to actually get things done. There's a billion books on strategy okay. design, but it really gets down to the guts of doing that. Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, I think, had a more recently had a, a pretty big impact on me. I think it's really quite a remarkable way of looking at how one develops expertise. If you're talking about classics, I actually, I recently reread the Iliad, mm. which as a, as a study of human nature, I think is may still be unmatched, right. Oh. For understanding how politics and and sort of human frailty can influence things. I, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful little case study.
1: Oh, beautiful. And how about a favorite tool, whether that's a Gadget, a piece of hardware, software, something like Evernote or something you just like?
2: Oh God, that's a really hard one. So I'm using Scrivener lately to write and I think that it's a really interesting
1: tool, right?
2: So, you know, I traditionally have written the way everybody writes, which is, you, you know, you open up your processor and away you go. And I, I found out actually relatively recently about this tool. It's kind of like a combination of database and, and sort of structuring tool for helping writers and it's really helping. So I, I'm kind of a, a fan of that tool right now.
1: Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite habit, a game-changing personal practice of yours that's really boosted your effectiveness?
2: Writing every day, and writing as early in the morning as you can. I think that's really helped me a lot over the years. I think that writing is hard, and I think sitting down and staring into that blank page is like staring into the void. You know? mm. I, I think that the discipline of, of spending some time every day doing writing, even if what you write in a given day is wonderful it really helps you a lot. I think also, you know, I've always also tried not to write too much every day because the last stuff you write all, always is garbage no. <laughs> and, 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 and you're, you're better off, you know, after a few hours of writing just to say, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm going to stop and
1: move on. Okay. And how about a, a fan favorite nugget of yours? Something that when, when you share it, it, it gets a, a lot of Kindle book highlights or retweets or, or note taking in a live setting. So what, what, what do you mean in terms of, of, of reading a book or something? Or what? I'm not sure I understand the question. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm saying something you say, people quote it, they tweet it, they highlight it, they say, oh, that's good. Always be sincere
2: whether you mean it or not. <laughs> I'm teasing. Right? That's a very old saying,
1: but it's one I use. It. It's one I use. In a humorous way that people (laughs) often laugh at if that's what you're looking for. Well, we'll take it. We'll take it. And and what's the the best way to find you if folks want to learn more about you or Genesis so where would you put them?
2: Sure. So I think um, through LinkedIn, always. I'm always happy Mm -hmm. to link into people. So if you just put in Michael Watkins, Genesis Advisors, I'll come up pretty quickly. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me.
1: Okay. As we part ways, do you have sort of a final parting word or call to action or challenge for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs?
2: So I think what you're doing is wonderful, right? And I think that it's never been more important than now because I think I've never seen a time, I'm not sure in human history we've seen a time where more change is going on than today and more need for adaptive response and learning and trying to be awesome has been more important than there is, than it is today. So I just encourage people to keep pushing on becoming more awesome in exactly the way you described
1: Beautiful. Well, well, thank you, Michael. This has been a real treat. I wish you lots of luck and fun in, in Switzerland and the U.S. and all your clients. Thanks very much, Pete. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks again to Michael for sharing his expertise with us. And thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Well, I hope that transition information is super helpful for you. Or you can pass that along to someone you know will need it soon or right away. And again, to check out the show notes, the transcript, the things mentioned, items linked, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep29 and hope to catch you next time.
0: Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.